the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir. Pleasant good afternoon to you, and good to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. We're here, of course, on this Thursday, just about five minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock, and we'll be keeping you company right up through 7 o'clock this evening. Lots to be talking about. We're going to have Brian Johnston from the National Right to Life Committee join us in one half hour's time for an update on the Life Film Fest. Tell you all about what's going on and why you can and should be involved. And before we get into our first topic tonight, if I might, just let me open with a prayer request. I was up visiting some of our friends at Valley Bible Church in Hercules earlier today. And um, one of the leaders, member of the Board of Deacons, his little 13-year-old granddaughter, Anaya, and I think it's Anaya, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly because I can't read this handwriting, and it's mine. <laughs> so bear with me. God knows who she is, but I believe it's Anaya. His, his little 13-year-old granddaughter um, has been hospitalized in and out of intensive care. She was diagnosed with sickle cell anemia. And for any of you that are familiar with that disease, you know that it can be rampant. It can attack various parts of the body with almost seemingly no connection. And sadly, this young lady, uh, as brave as she has been, um, as encouraging to those around her as she has been, she's suffering. And more so, the, the parents and certainly the grandparents. And you could see the look on his face today. He is a very worried daddy for his daughter and a very worried granddaddy for his granddaughter. And so I just, for those of you that are prayer warriors in the audience, this is what you do. Would you add Anaya to your prayer list? Little 13-year-old Anaya, she's back uh, on the East Coast. And uh, just pray that God would be with her, that God would heal her and restore her. And uh, add her to the top of your prayer list. I know certainly that her grandfather would very much appreciate that. All right. Well, uh, praying is a lot of what we do in the church. And, of course, we've been doing a lot of it over the last week or so in the wake of the tragic shootings that took place in El Paso and in um, Ohio. And uh, now today, uh, and that, of course, on the heels of what had happened barely a week ago, just a little over a week ago in Gilroy. Now today, Houston reporting, uh, the police there in the last two hours reporting that two people were shot and killed on Interstate 10 and that the shooter is still on the run. They don't know whether or not this was random, road rage related or what the deal is. It just once again underscores this country's got a problem. It's got a serious problem. And yes, it can be argued that it is a gun problem, uh, but I think it goes deeper than that. And certainly as we explore with our first guest some of the issues, I think we need to have an open mind in understanding that 
it, it's flippant to say guns don't kill people, people kill people. Yeah, and that's kind of a gun lobby dismissive way of sort of, you know, um, uh, trying to, to distance themselves from the violence. But the, the real reality is that we have seen a major paradigm shift in America in its morals and values that I think has been the precursor to this violence. And if any of you have had the stomach to listen to this program for more than a couple of years, a few of you go back, oh, way back, know that for 30 years I've been saying on this show we have got to wake up to the fact that television and film and video games influence young people and at the very least desensitize them to what's really happening when you shoot a gun and point it at somebody. You can't take a bullet back. You take a lot of things back, you can't take a bullet back. And I believe that violent entertainment, video games, all the war rhetoric that we've had, certainly been deluged with since 2001, and the morals vacuum coupled with the devaluing of life, abortion on demand, euthanasia, drug culture, all of these things, maybe not any one singularly responsible for the violent culture in which we live, but all contributory. Joining me is Pastor Sam Rohr. He is president of the American Pastors Network. And Pastor Rohr, thank you so much to take some time to be with us again. Um, I, I know that even there on the the East Coast, and you know, you, you've had some of the violence there as well, and in recent months with the tragic shootings at the synagogue. I think all of us from coast to coast and border to border look at this, and people with a sense of of uh, moral moorings, if you will have to wonder how much of the overall attitude and atmosphere in our society today has ultimately been contributory to all of this horrific violence. Hmm. Uh, Craig, I, I think you're right, and I think when you went through earlier and identified a number of those causes, uh, I think those are all very true. Uh, it's probably not one uh, single thing, as you have said, but I can say that when we look back in time on, in this country, there was a time, and that's the thing about it, things have changed, and, and what you said is correct. Uh, there was a time, though, when there was a general respect for life of all types. There was a general discipline in the way people treated each other and treated their neighbors and even spoke. To some degree. Obviously, there were always evil, and there were always people having to be tried for their crimes and, and dealt with and go to jail and, and do more. We know that. But as a culture, but as a culture, we were different. And in my lifetime, and I'm just a little over 60, so I'll date myself, but in my lifetime, we had what we called the blue laws. Where even Sunday, you could not have businesses open on Sunday. I was in high school when that law changed in our state of Ohio when we grew up. I'm in Pennsylvania now. It changed around the same time. We remember when prayer was taken out of the public school. We remember when the Supreme Court declared that the Ten Commandments, God's moral universal law for proper conduct of all society, we recall when the Supreme Court made the determination 
that the Ten Commandments could no longer be posted on the walls of our public schools. Reason being, they said, and I think I think back on this often, Craig, the reason that they gave was we we believe that if the Ten Commandments hang on the wall, that our children will read them. And if they read them, they will venerate them, or they will do them. And they said, this we cannot allow. So we remove the guidelines from our children that says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, uh, thou shalt not uh, bear false witness and lie. We take away those things because the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of our land, the one who has to deal with judgment, ultimately the matters of law, said we cannot allow our children to read these and do them. And I said, well, then what are we going to get? We will get children who will not obey any of those things. Now they're adults and beyond, and we have the kinds of things that we have in our society. So we do that. We we declare that babies in the womb are not to be protected, and we legalize murder. These things we've done at the highest levels in this land, and then you couple it with what you said, the media, um, entertainment, Hollywood, that takes and graphically glorifies uh, killing and raping and burning and well, then, what are we going to do? What are children going to do if what they're being taught is no restraint in school, and they're having the very actions that those Ten Commandments would have prevent, prevented them from doing, glorified whenever they look anywhere on movies or on the Internet? Is it any wonder, then, that just on that alone, that young people are doing exactly what they've seen their culture teach them, and what they have seen glorified. And so as a result, I mean, we have a culture that has been conditioned not to fear God. And when we don't fear God, there is no fear of God in his role as judge. There is no accountability. We don't think in terms of sin or evil and eternal reward or eternal judgment. And when those things happen to any society in the world... You have what the Bible says. God says, I'll take my hand of blessing off of you, and you will suffer the, the, the results, the consequences of walking away from me. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 30 talks all about. And uh, so anyway, we're not here by accident, but where we are is scary. It's a problem. And without a doubt, I think we also see as a part of it the natural consequence of walking away from God but I also think, Craig, that we are seeing God's hand of judgment on this land, on this nation, because we have walked away from Him as a nation. Well, and you, you know, you you uh, you sow. I mean, you you reap what you sow, and and there's clearly many aspects uh, to all of this that are there. I, I, it, it, I mean, does it really take a, a, a Rhodes Scholar? 
struggling to find the words here. Does it take a Rhodes Scholar to make a connection between the notion that we removed out of public classrooms everywhere, and I'm old enough, too, to remember the Ten Commandments hanging alongside the American flag in classrooms in public schools, and we, we take that out. So the daily suggestion of thou, will, thou shalt honor your mother and father, you won't steal, don't, uh, uh, don't lie, don't kill, et cetera, et cetera, don't commit murder, rather, um, we take away that message and replace it with situational ethics and moral relativism. And then when we see all of this violence play out, we look to each other and say, what's going on? What's happened? Well, what's happening is we are reaping the product of what was sown by the Supreme Court and those people of goodwill who did nothing back in the 1960s and since then. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of culpability to go around. We are reaping what we have sown. This is the effects of when you say to God, no, thank you, don't need you, don't need you in the public player, uh, place, prayer is a very private thing. Faith is a private thing. So don't do it publicly. Keep it to yourself. And I, I dare say that this is the results. And if anybody would like to prove me wrong, call me and we'll we'll have that discussion. Let's take a time out. We'll come back to more of the conversation. Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network. We're talking about these tragic shootings. Yet another one today, not a mass shooting, although more than two, that's enough. A shooting today, two dead on the freeway in Houston, Texas. And it begs an interesting question, and I want to have you uh, ponder this during the break, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Um, I heard voiced by a number of political leaders, even some religious leaders, over the weekend, over the last week, in observing the shootings um, in uh, Dayton and uh, El Paso, that this is not who we are. This is not who we are. Or is it? Time out. We'll be back. Let's get a look at traffic. 519, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Okay, here's where it gets rough. Uh, Many opine, several commentators uh, from both the political arena and even a couple from the spiritual arena in sort of reviewing the aftermath of the shootings said that this is not who we are. As Americans, this is not who we are. But I have to wonder, yeah, maybe it kind of is. And as we've suggested before the break, um, a country that celebrates the taking of life and calls it a right to privacy, a nation that has systematically tried to eradicate the presence of anything godlike from the public arena for the better part of over 50 years, going on 60 years now. Um, You know, after a while, you have to wonder if what we're seeing here, sadly, is becoming really who we are and that maybe it's high time that this nation really wake up to some serious realities of what's happening to our young people in the culture today where, you know, I hear people say all the time, well, the, 
You know, these horrible people that are bringing drugs across our border. Yeah, they're bringing drugs across our border, as a good businessman does, to try to find a need and fill it. Why don't we ever talk about the fact that the drug problem is not the one that is being facilitated by people south of the border. It's the one that is being operated by everybody north of the border. We're buying the stuff. America has a drug problem. We've talked about opioids, but the list goes on ad nauseum. And I'm, and I'm fearful that what's, what we're seeing here with this culture of death, culture of violence, culture that is becoming increasingly more and more evil as it drifts further and further away from God, that, that, that sadly, yeah, folks, let's, let's wake up and look in the mirror and say, you know what, yeah, this is who we are. Pastor Rohr, what do you think of that? I mean, is this essentially a good wake-up call for America to realize that uh, we're long overdue for some serious repentance? Uh, Craig, I couldn't say it stronger than what, uh, than what you said it. Um, when we see these things, yes, we know that many listening to this program right now are not the ones who are going out doing these crimes. Of course not. Surely, that is true. And, and it's not to say that our entire nation, by any means, the majority of our nation are terrorists in heart or action. No, that's, that's not what anybody is saying either. However, to say that murder and mayhem, as we've seen over this past weekend, is not a typical you know, uh, display of who we are, would be totally inaccurate. I raise this as a point. Just think about this. In Chicago, last week, last weekend, I think there were 22 or so, maybe higher than not, that were killed in El Paso. In Chicago, there were 25 murders. We're not even talking about them. That was in Chicago. Uh, here in Philadelphia, not far from me, as of this past weekend, when these things, events took place, up to that point, there were more murders in Philadelphia this year than any for a long time, 190. 190 murders in Philadelphia so far this year as of that date. And you could go to Baltimore, and you could go to Washington, D.C., and you go to L.A., wherever you're going to go. There are murders of this type. They're not even factored into what we saw this weekend. No, it does. It has become, Craig, sadly. Uh, across across the country, this is happening. So who are we? We, we? we are a nation that has many good people in it, but we are a nation that has become filled with murderers and covetous. The Bible talks about this. There's no fear of God. Psalm 36 says, The transgression of the wicked says within their heart, There is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, what keeps anybody from acting out of the sinful condition of their heart, a depraved heart which we all have, according to the Word of God? What keeps anybody from acting on a depraved heart? It's a limitation, according to God's moral law. But if we throw off that restraint, and I'm going to go there, it's not just everybody, Craig. I mean, we're talking about some, yes, but when I go, I'm saying Christian people probably listening to this program, really look in the mirror. I go, to, I go to Revelation 3. God talks about the state of the churches. I think everyone listening would, would know. But when they go to 
the Church of Laodicea, which I believe typifies where the Church is today in America. The Church of Laodicea says, oh God, what's wrong with us? We're just fine. We get plenty of money. We're secure. We have fine clothes to wear. We're in good shape. And God looks at him and says, no, you're not. You are really destitute. You are naked. You are without the ability to see yourself. He said, buy, spend a little bit of your money and buy some eye salve so I can put it on your eyes so that you can see who you are. Craig, when the salt is not salt, when the church who is here for the purpose of lifting up the standard of truth, for being that salt and that light that points what is happening to the standard, God's standard, which alone can bring blessing, and we do not do it. And the church is silent, which the church has been silent, then we get where we are. So I think we have a condition here that, yeah, no, this is who we are, because all I need to do is to look into the church in America and find that the church looks like Laodicea. And I say we have a lot of blind people who think they are just fine, and these are the ones who theoretically hold the truth. It's time we do look in the mirror as God's people and say our own hearts are not right with God, yet we are idolaters. We're, we're, we're trusting in things other than God himself. Let the judgment start in the house of God first. Well, you know, Second Chronicles 7.14 is, is very poignant when it, when it calls for his people. God says, if my people call by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. What? what wait a minute. Who is he calling to humble and turn from their wicked ways? My people. Wow, there's a wake-up call. You know, speaking of wake-up calls, there were calls all weekend by a number of congressional leaders that the president needs to call Congress back into session so we can pass a law and do something. Well, I think the bigger thing is that there needs to be a call to all Americans back to God. And I've begun saying, you know, as much as the, the, the so-called MAGA slogan was a, was a great campaign theme, you know, make America great again, uh, there's a precursor to that. There is a prerequisite to that, that if we don't articulate it and embrace it and acknowledge it and work toward realizing it, then the second is never going to come to fruition. And that's simply this. If you want to make America great again, we've got to make America godly again. Because if we fail to make America godly again, we will never, no politician, no congressional bill, no reduction in taxes, no negotiation with foreign countries, nothing will ever happen to make America great again until first and foremost, we get our priorities straight and recognize that what we really need to do, first and foremost, is to make America godly again. Pastor Sam Rohr, I appreciate the time. And uh, we've got a lot of praying to do. And we've got a lot of work to do. And a lot of repenting to do. And I would suggest uh, not waiting for Congress to move, not waiting for the president to call the Senate back into session, the House back into session, but rather let's get started on this business of repentance and making America godly again right now. I'll tell you who it begins with. It begins with you. It begins with me. 532. 
Pastor Sam Rohrer, president of the American Pastors Network. All right, let's check in at the KFAX Traffic Center, get an update for you on the Thursday commute. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Um, boy, the issue of life, of course, on our minds uh, quite heavily these days. And uh, this runs the gambit from the cradle to the grave, as they say. One of the areas that we are long concerned with is um, the, the position that this nation has taken um, or foisted upon it in some cases since 1973's Roe versus Wade decision. And in order to, as we were talking about earlier with Pastor Sam Rohr, in order to, to help to change opinion and to bring truth to people, you need to be able to have access to them, to speak truth to them in a fashion that they're, they're open and willing to, to receive. And uh, one of the more effective means of doing that is through film. And as much as a moment ago, I criticized the detrimental impact of films that are nothing but filled with violence and murder and crime. There are other types of films that can be educational, eye-opening, and celebratory of life. Let's get more information as we're joined by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, but about the annual Life Fest. And Brian, as always, great to have you on the show. It's always a pleasure, Craig. And the reason is because you understand that we're in a battle of ideas. And your show and the work of KFAX in getting the right ideas out there is so critical. And that's the problem, as you mentioned, with our challenge as a culture, because we're looking at a frame of reference that a lot of people have lost. They've lost that sense that human life has value. And one of the things we have to recognize in an abortion, while all of us who are pro-life oppose abortion, it's, it's not simply because cute babies have been killed. We all like babies. What's significant is that an innocent and vulnerable human being has been dismissed. And the value of the right to life is something that intrinsically... And I've met many people in the industry. Uh, I actually, when I was a young man, worked for an entertainment law firm before I moved to Northern California. And it was very eye-opening. There's a lot of people in the industry who actually agree with us. They just don't quite understand the fullness of that. But most people in the industry, when you say, you know, every human being is significant, when they think about it, they agree that the seemingly insignificant person, and this has historically been one of the messages of Hollywood films, that somebody who seems to be irrelevant and a nobody can actually change the world in which he or she lives. That's the, that's the romantic arch. That's the storytelling uh, uh, model that someone can make a difference, even though it seems extraordinary, because human beings are extraordinary. And so that's really the message of Life Fest. It's been going for nine years. Uh, recently, I think I mentioned to you, Unplanned was awarded both the Best Picture uh, as well as Best Actress for Ashley Brasher. 
but a, a very important film. But it was unusual in the sense that it did focus on abortion. Many of our films focus on the theme that every human life is significant. And I think we need to recognize that's the real message of the pro-life movement, that everyone is significant. And folks who, who don't get it, they themselves are looking for significance. They sense it intuitively. I wish I had a purpose. I hate to say this, but I think the young men who were, who were shooting people last weekend or two, it's pretty clear that they had psychological problems. They felt insignificant. They wanted significance. And that is something that God has put into us, that we are intrinsically someone. There is somebody inside, and that person has meaning. Well, that, that message is from God. So the question is, how do we get to that message? How do we give people an understanding that you are significant, that your life is of value, and so are the lives of others? So Life Fest Film Festival does that, and it's a place where the thousands, and there's tens of thousands every year, of kids who graduate from art school, from different colleges and universities, they want to break into the industry. We want to give them a place where they can get plugged in and, and create positive product, positive films and storytelling to change our culture. Now, is there a one single location where screenings are done annually or for people that want to get information about what films have been entered, which ones have been nominated, where can they go to find all that? Yes, that's at lifefilmfest.com. That's lifefilmfest.com. And uh, we screen at the Raleigh Studios, which was originally the, the Chaplin Studios years ago, one of the very first studios in Hollywood. And it had the first sound stages in Hollywood. So we're really going back to Hollywood roots. But that's every spring. But it's an ongoing submission process. And as you know, it's an ongoing battle in terms of impacting people's thinking, their frame of reference. And it's one thing to curse the darkness. As you mentioned, it's very easy to see the films we don't like. But it's important if, if we are seeing the darkness that we light a candle and you'll see that people will be drawn to that, particularly the darker things get. We actually have the message of life and it's important that we present it in a way that's palpable and easily entreated. Uh, we had Vanna White two years ago. She was very excited to be there. And, uh, it was quite by accident. Her brother had made a film that, that he had submitted, but she was very pleased. Quite a few other people that that you may know, but it's really there to encourage the affirmation of life within the Hollywood industry, and that's one industry in California that impacts the world. So it's a very important outreach, and now at these dark times and some of the bad news and even some of the bad media that's constantly being turned towards us, I think we need to recognize we can make a difference, and that's what Life Fest is about. To get more information, simply go online, as Brian mentioned, to lifefilmfest.com. That's lifefilmfest.com. And our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. All right, 5.45, the clock tells me. Let's see what they tell us about your ride home this Thursday from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that at the level of day to day living, I think we're all familiar with this issue of hope. And I think um, 
at the core, we all certainly understand and know what hopelessness is. I mean, hopelessness is owing $1,000 to the IRS when you only have 150 bucks in your checking account, right? That's, that's hopelessness. Wanting the promotion at work at the age of 61 when you know you're slowing down, and up comes the 30-year-old gangbuster co-worker wanting the same promotion. That can be pretty hopeless. If you're desiring to see your first grandchild when you have been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and your daughter isn't even expecting, that can be pretty hopeless. A devastating 7.2 earthquake hitting the poorest town and the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, killing tens of hundreds of thousands of people, that can be pretty hopeless as well. It's sad but true that oftentimes, even within the church... We have a far better understanding and grasp on what hopelessness is, but don't understand much about what hope is, let alone the notion of being able to pay it forward. Hope Casting is the title of a new book by my guest tonight, Mark Ostreicher. He is partnered with the Youth Cartel. It's an organization that challenges youth ministers through strategic counseling and innovative resource development for youth ministries. He has served as vice president of ministry resources and later as president of Youth Specialties in San Diego, an organization that trains and equips church youth workers. And he's authored or contributed to more than 60 books. And, Mark, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Greg. I'm glad to be here. Why is it that we as the church... um, don't really have a good grasp on what hope is. We've got a lot of experience, to be sure, with hopelessness. Uh, but it seems as if a lot of us in the church do really have a good understanding from a biblical perspective as to what hope is. And oftentimes, I think we, we end up confusing biblical hope with just wishful thinking. Absolutely. I, I, it's exactly why I tried to start to explore this for myself before I even started writing the book, I was finding myself in a season of hopelessness from a job loss and uh, all the identity questions that came from that and and really wrestled with my, I think, immature ideas of what hope is. I just didn't find them sustainable. I feel like we've been, I'd been told so many times that hope was like you said, wishful thinking. I would say hope was optimism, right? Just put on a happy face and be positive. And I wasn't finding that all that helpful. It wasn't, it wasn't doing anything for me. And, and when I tried to start looking at what other Christians were saying uh, in books and things like that, I looked on the Internet and on Amazon and stuff, and so much of the language of hope was only connected to the afterlife which is beautiful and wonderful and true, but it wasn't enough to pull me out of bed, right? It wasn't enough to give me fuel of um, kind of encouragement for that given day. It's not like I was in a deep depression, but I was in a tough place. And so I started to really search Scripture and found that my understanding of hope was not lining up with the Bible. Yeah. And I think, ironically, I mean, that that's something that I think a lot of us certainly struggle with, no matter what stage we happen to be at in our walk with Christ. And I think also we tend to apply, as I think you're suggesting, Mark, a lot of secular definitions to hope that, that kind of seems as if, well, if we if we somewhere in there uh, quote a Bible verse in the process, we've somehow brought it back to the biblical perspective. I mean, for example, it's 
not unusual for people to say, well, having hope. You know, at the end, it, it, it just makes you the optimist. And then people will say, well, I know so-and-so. He's a natural optimist. Okay, so then uh-huh. define for me an unnatural optimist. And how do you go about adopting the, the sense of optimism that a person has? What is it really based on? And I certainly, in reading through your book today, drew the conclusion that, well, you know, uh, whether you're an unnatural optimist or a natural one, optimism in and of itself tends to kind of be built on a pretty shallow foundation. Yeah, you know, and I'm not anti-optimism. I would say I am an optimist, and I'd much rather be around a group of optimists than a group of pessimists. So. I'm pro-optimism. It's just not the same thing as biblical hope. And optimism is helpful in little short spurts, but for a lifetime of meaning and purpose, uh, and it's particularly when we're in difficult seasons, we need something more than that, and that's when hope comes into play. What strikes me about the lessons that you you share in the book, and we're going to get into this deeper uh, after we do a time out here, but what what strikes me is that you, you, you show us through the book that the journey to hope is not just a uh, snap your finger and you're there, that in fact the journey to hope takes us through hopelessness. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Explain a little bit about that, would you? Because yeah, some people I, say, well, wait a minute, I, I don't want to be in hopelessness. I just want to hurry up and quick, get me to hope. <laughs> Maybe the easiest way to, to do that is to, to start with where this first started to become a, an awareness for me. And it, you mentioned in your intro of me when an earthquake hits the poorest country or the poorest city in the Western Hemisphere, and that's where, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, this started to shift for me. Um, I was in the season of hopelessness after losing a job, and just months after that, ended up uh, in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, leading a short trip for a group of influential youth workers three weeks after the Haiti earthquake. And I expected to see lots of pain and suffering, and boy, did I, to an extent that I've never experienced it or seen it in my life. What shocked me, and I didn't expect it all, was the deep level of hopefulness that I found in Haitian believers. And I, it was completely unexpected. We were driving down a busy road on our first day in Haiti, having have to drift. We had to drive over from the Dominican because the Port-au-Prince airport was still closed. And we got stopped in traffic, and we saw all this crowd of people up ahead and thought it must be a protest. And several of us jumped out of our little minivan and made our way up to see what was happening. And when I came upon this crowd of about a thousand people still assuming it was a protest, I felt I want to separate from my group and kind of get in the middle of this and try to feel what's going on because I couldn't understand the language. Of course, they're speaking in Haitian Creole. So I pushed my way into the middle of the crowd, and it wasn't until I was in the middle of the crowd that I noticed that all of the people had big smiles on their faces. They weren't, pro- they weren't angry faces of protest. And these two little old Haitian women came up to me, grabbed my hands, and through body language made it clear that I was supposed to start dancing. (laughs) For an an overweight old white guy, it was kind of an awkward moment for me, but it was compelling, and I knew that I needed to give myself to whatever this experience was, and I started hopping around. I noticed they're not yelling, they're singing, and all of these quick 
realizations came to me. I noticed at the end of the street there was a, a band up on a stage, and it suddenly struck me these people are worshiping God, which was completely counter to what I expected. And then I realized these people have experienced more pain in their life than I ever will. Every one of them I came to find have lost people, uh, lost homes, lost jobs, but they have a level of hope that I have never experienced, and that verse that I'd memorized as a child in a Bible memory program from the book of Romans when Paul says to us, we, uh, we have, I'm just blanking on the verse, we rejoice in our sufferings, that's it, we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering leads us to character, and character leads us to hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. And it, and it just dawned on me, these people know hope because of their sufferings. And in their exile and honest expression of pain to God, Jesus comes and meets them and brings hope to them. That was the revolutionary moment for me. And hopefully it's going to be a, a crystallizing moment for our listeners as well, as we're talking about this issue of, of not just finding and keeping and sharing things unseen, that experience of hope, but uh, sort of playing that hope forward toward others. The book is called Hope Casting. It's authored with us today, Mark Ostreicher. We'll take a brief time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 